At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. Have you ever had a, a healthy fear of someone in your life? Not, not a bad fear, right? Not, not the fear of like harm or hurt, but like a, like a healthy fear. I read a story a while back uh, by a pastor down in Tennessee, his name is Mike Glenn, who shared a story about having a, a reverent or healthy fear. Uh, it was on a blog that I read, and he told a story one day when he was about to turn 16 and get his driver's license, his dad took him out for breakfast shortly before he was going to take his test. And as they sat down for breakfast, his dad began to tell him how much he loved him and how much he appreciated, how responsible he was, and um, began to pray, praise him a little bit. And, um, but at one point, Glenn recounts in the story that uh, his dad started to get pretty serious. And, and this is what he actually writes. He says that his dad at one point looked at him and said, now, son, you're getting into a new phase of your life. You're becoming a man. You'll be going places where I won't be, and you'll be doing things that I won't see. You'll be pressured by your friends to do some things, and some of those things you know are things I don't want you to do. And in that moment, you'll have to make a decision. You'll have to decide, are you more afraid of your friends, or are you more afraid of me? And then he leaned across the table, put his eyes directly on mine, and said, you'd better be more afraid of me. Glenn recounts how he never forgot that moment, and it stuck with him, and he in fact says that it helped save him from several catastrophes in his life. Healthy, reverent, respectful fear can actually be a powerful force in our lives. When it comes to our relationship with God, I think one of the things that's often overlooked or at times underemphasized is the role of healthy, reverent fear. That, that we actually are supposed to have a certain awe, a certain fear of God, of who he is, of his power, of his majesty. You and I are created to fear God. Some, some of us might even cringe a little bit just hearing that idea. But the Bible actually says this is an important way in which we're created to live in the world. In fact, the book of Proverbs, which he recounts to us, a whole bunch of wisdom of how we're to live in God's world, God's ways, reminds us in the book that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That part of the way we learn to live in God's world, God's ways, is by first having a certain reverence and awe a fear, a healthy fear of who God is. The reality is when we fail to have a healthy, reverent fear of God, it can often lead to catastrophes for us. Today, we're going to look at the story of two key characters in the book of Jonah. And the question that hangs over their story is, who has a healthy fear of God? And in many ways, the story is going to force us to ask ourselves the question, do we have a healthy fear of God? Last week, we kicked off our series on the book of Jonah, which is a unique book found in the collection of 12 prophetic books in our Old Testament. Jonah is unique because while the rest of those prophetic books share words from the prophet, Jonah is actually a story about a prophet. And in many ways, Jonah is a representative prophet. That's what I reminded us last week. We're meant to look at Jonah, and in many ways, he's to be a mirror back to us of the tendencies we can have sometime as God's 
people to not walk in the way God calls us to live. Jonah's meant to challenge us prophetically. Last week, we looked at the reality that this book is centered around a key idea of, or key reality of Jonah, which is his spiritual defiance. At the beginning of the book, God comes to Jonah, his prophet, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, which was the large city that was one of the capitals of the Assyrian Empire. It was an evil city. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to call out against it because their evil's gotten so bad, I have to do something about it. And so Jonah Instead of going, like God says, Jonah decides to go the opposite direction. We just read in the story. God says to go to Nineveh, which Jonah would have been in Jerusalem. Nineveh would have been to the northeast of Jerusalem. Jonah instead heads to Tarshish, which is as far west as you could go in the known world. Jonah literally heads in the opposite direction. And from the very beginning of the book, we're challenged with the issue of spiritual defiance. If you were here last week, you might remember I had a table set up. If you weren't, one of the things we unpacked is that all of us at points in our lives are like Jonah. We have issues of spiritual defiance, parts of our lives that we just don't want to do what God says to do. And we often sit at tables at odds with God saying, yeah, God, I'm with you on this, but this part, this area, this call, this challenge, like that's not for me, right? That all of us have parts, myself included. We all have these parts of our hearts that have spiritual defiance. And spiritual defiance is a major issue in our lives. And last week, we kind of left a little bit just feeling, what, what are those things in our lives? Exploring, what are the areas of our hearts where we might be potentially defiant towards God? That was Jonah's issue. His pride led him to a place where he thought he knew better than God, and he just wasn't going to follow God and the call that God gave him to go to the Ninevites. But the question that arises right immediately, we only looked at the last first three verses last week, and the question that kind of arises is, well, how does God respond to Jonah's spiritual defiance? How does God respond to our spiritual defiance? And what are the things that can help us in life to actually not live in spiritual defiance towards God, but to walk in the way that actually, as Proverbs says, is wise or brings wisdom in our life? Well, this is where the role of reverent fear comes in. Because one of the things that I want us to explore a little bit today is the reality that reverent fear is actually a healthy part of submissive faith. And that reverent fear can help us not walk the path of spiritual defiance, but can actually produce something greater in us. But in order to see this, we kind of got to unpack the story we just read. The story of Jonah and this cast of sailors that are on this boat that he's on in this book. But while we unpack this story, I want you to have a question in the back of your mind that I think will help you see what the author's trying to get at as he shares this story with us. And the question is simply this, who is it that truly fears God? Who is it that truly fears God? And I'm going to give you a warning up front that it might be a little bit surprising about who actually fears God in this story. At least it would have been for Jonah's original audience. All right, so let's pick up our story a little bit and kind of see where we go. So again, God comes to Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah in verse 1 through 3 says, nope, I'm going in the opposite direction. So how does God respond? Verse 4, but the Lord 
So remember, just real quick, aside, remember when you read through the book of Jonah, anytime you encounter the word Lord in all capital letters, that's the translator signifying to you that they're using God's divine name in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament name Yahweh, it's his personal name that was given to the nation of Israel. So the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So God responds to Jonah's defiance essentially by sending a storm to kind of wake Jonah from his spiritual malaise. Like he's kind of in his own world and God sends a storm on a boat to say like, hey, pay attention. What you're doing isn't good. It's not right. It's not going to bring the best life. But Jonah has no interest in responding to or seeking after God. He has no interest. He's going to keep moving away from God as far as he can. And the author actually wants to highlight Jonah's direction and the fact that he moves downward and away from God. Listen again to verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down on board the ship to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So God's trying to get Jonah's attention. The mariners were afraid. They each cried out to God. They hurled cargo off the ship. We'll come back to in a second. But look what Jonah does. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the author's trying to give you the direction of Jonah from the beginning. He keeps going down. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the ship. The storm comes. He goes down in the ship, right? He lays down to go to sleep. In fact, the word that the author uses there for the innermost part of the ship carries in the Hebrew the idea of Sheol, or the grave. What he's trying to see is Jonah is very content to move towards spiritual death. And we're going to see later, he's even content to move towards literal death. That's how spiritually defiant Jonah is. Even when God sends this storm with this massive chaos surrounding him that's threatening to break up the ship, which is threatening the lives of these sailors, what's Jonah doing? He's asleep. He could care less. He doesn't care if he lives or dies. He's happy to stay at the bottom of the boat and continue in his spiritual defiance. What's pictured here from the get-go is someone who does not have a healthy fear of God. Jonah thinks he knows better than God, and he's so settled in his defiance that he's even ignorant of how much his sin is putting others at risk and harming these sailors. See, sometimes when we're in a place of spiritual defiance, we can convince ourselves, this is just a me and God issue. This doesn't affect other people. But what we see is sin always affects others around us. It always begins to bring disrepair to God's good world. And even when we can convince ourselves to the point where we're like, well, I have peace, I'm asleep. If we're not careful, that might be because we've just turned our ear from what God is trying to get us to do, or what, how God is trying to get our attention. And so Jonah stays in the bottom of the boat. But we're introduced to another set of characters here that become a contrast to Jonah. And their journey in many ways stands kind of opposite to the way Jonah moves. It's this group of sailors that are on the boat. And so while Jonah remains committed to moving away from God, what we are going to continue to see is that these sailors actually begin to take steps towards God in the early part of the story. 
The first thing these sailors do is they recognize this storm is no ordinary storm. They're pretty quick to recognize there's some supernatural entity that's behind it. They were familiar with the waters. They knew how storms came up. This one, there was something different about this storm, and it threatened their life. And so their next step in the process is to say, well, we're going to start praying to figure out who's behind this storm. Now, these sailors, they're polytheists which means they believe in many gods behind many things. And so at this point, they don't know who's behind this storm, but they're just like, whatever God's behind this, we got to figure it out. So we're going to just start praying to however many gods we can think of. So I imagine they're like walking around the boat. They're like, Joe, who's your God? Great, we'll pray to him. Sam, who's your God? Great, we'll pray to him. Chuck, who's your God? Great, we'll pray to him. Like, we're just going to shotgun this thing and hope someone somewhere hears us and will actually rescue us. But the problem is it doesn't get better, it gets worse. And it gets so worse that they at some point decide, all right, we got to throw this cargo overboard. Like we got to lighten the ship up so it doesn't sink. Because you and I both know when your life is on the line, money just doesn't matter at that point. You're like, I got to do whatever I can to save myself. Well, at some point, the captain recognizes, wait, there's somebody who hired this ship who isn't freaking out right now. And so he goes down to Jonah. And look at what he says to Jonah in verse Six. So the captain came to him and said, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, what's interesting is that the captain here uses the same word that God uses at the very beginning of the book. He calls Jonah to arise. He invites Jonah to awaken from his spiritual defiance and to pay attention to what God is doing. And so they begin to pray, and they begin to pray, and or it says to pray that God would give thought to us. But Jonah has no interest in praying. But the sailors aren't done. They, they still want to figure out what's going on. So they decide to cast lots, which was an ancient way of seeking to discern God's will. So you would take some dice or some things and you would try to figure out what's actually happening. It wasn't gambling. It was actually a spiritual activity. And we see it in multiple times in the Old Testament. Well, Jonah wins the lottery or he loses it, depending on how you want to look at the story, right? And they identify, wait, there's something, there's something with this guy. And so they begin to ask him in verse 8, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? Right? They want to know, Jonah, what's going on. But what's interesting here at the very first scene of the thing, of the story, is these sailors are actually the spiritual seekers in the story. Jonah, on the other hand, doesn't care. They're the ones who are asking the questions. They're the one casting lots. They're the ones praying. They're the ones who are actually seeking. And in many ways, they show us kind of the initial reality of those who truly fear God. It's people who seek God with their questions. One of the things that can help us see if we have reverent fear or not is by looking at our disposition towards God in the challenging moments of life. Jonah is the prophet of God. Remember, you would expect him to be the one who's turning towards God, but he's not. Jonah doesn't care. But these sailors come along, and they're the ones in the story that you would think were the farthest from God. And they're the ones actually seeking. They're trying to pray. They don't know to who yet, but they're trying. They're asking the questions. They're trying to figure out what's behind this storm and what God's will is. Reverent fear begins by turning towards God, not away from 
him. Right? They, these mariners were afraid, but out of their fear, they didn't root themselves away, but they turned back to God. And they sought understanding. They sought to understand the deeper reality. One of the things that can show us if we have a lack of reverent, healthy fear in our lives is when challenging circumstances come and there's no prayer, no seeking, no desire to follow, no questions. We just sit in a place where we say, I don't care what you have to say, God. I'm going to do what I want to do, even if my life is on the line. Healthy fear leads to good questioning. In his book, Awe, why it matters for everything we think, say, and do. Pastor and author Paul David Tripp reminds us how a healthy, reverent fear or awe leads us to ask the sort of questions that move us towards God instead of away from him. He writes at one point in that book, if someone asked you what the two most important questions you could ask were, what would you answer? If you are God's child, there may be no more important questions than these two. What in the world is God doing right here, right now? And how in the world should I respond to it? How we answer those questions, Tripp says, influences our understanding of God in the challenging parts of our lives. And it also speaks to whether in those moments we'll move towards God or will we move away from him. He goes on to say later, spiritual growth is about recapturing our awe. When we have a healthy fear of God, we will ask, God, what are you doing in this situation? And how should I respond to it? Imagine how Jonah's story might have been different if he was willing to ask the questions just like the sailors. What's going on with this storm? What is God doing in this moment? How should I actually respond to what God's doing in this moment? Oh, maybe I shouldn't go to Tarshish. Maybe I should actually obey what God said, and I'll go back to Nineveh. But he's not even willing to ask those questions. But the sailors are. They show a reverent fear by their willingness to ask, to seek, to discern. No matter what season you find yourself in, those are two great questions to come back to time and again. What in the world is God doing right here, right now? What's he doing in your life right here, right now, in the season that you find yourself in? That might take seeking, that might take prayer, that might take pursuit, but as God revealed that, then ask, how in the world am I supposed to respond to it? How am I supposed to live in light of what God is doing? Okay, that could be the whole sermon right there, but unfortunately, we're only one scene into the story, right? So let's look as this story continues as we move into scene two. So verse nine, and he, Jonah, said to them. Now, Jonah's about to speak, and Jonah, this is the first time we hear Jonah speak in the book, and his response is very telling of where he's at in his journey of spiritual defiance. This is what he says, I am a Hebrew. So notice Jonah's response. They're like, Jonah, where are you from? What are you about? What's your job? Like, who are you? And the first place that Jonah runs to is his ethnic identity. He doesn't run and say, I'm a prophet of God. I've been sent by Yahweh. I actually, that's my role is to stand in the presence of God and deliver his word. No, he runs very quickly to, I'm a Hebrew. I'm not like you. Now remember, Jonah is written to be a challenge originally to the nation of Israel, but then it moves to challenge all of us. 
And one of the things we see is an issue for the nation of Israel time and time again in the Old Testament is they often put their pride in being God's chosen people, their ethnic identity over and above God's call to love and show mercy to the nations around them. And God rebukes them for that time and again. And Jonah represents them here in the moment where they're coming saying, hey, we're trying to figure out what's going on. His first place to go is not to God. It's to remind himself, this is who I am. When we're in places of spiritual defiance in our lives, pride can often cause us to root our identity in something other than what God has called to root our identity in. But then he continues, and his words just drip with irony here. I am a Hebrew and I fear. So there's the key word that we see throughout this passage. I fear. I have reverent awe. That idea that we see in Proverbs. I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah essentially says, this is who I am. And the God that I fear, the God I worship, the God I stand in awe of, is the God who is sovereign over everything. He actually quotes here from Psalm 95, where that psalm references how God is sovereign over the land, over the seas, that God is in control of everything. And so he acknowledges, even in his words, that God's in control, that God is sovereign. Yet, his words are so ironic. He says, I fear God, but I'm actually doing the exact opposite of what God told me to do. You're like, do you really fear God? Like, if you really feared God, wouldn't you, like, be going to Nineveh, not Tarshish, Jonah? You see, the reality is, what Jonah reminds us is that we can still be in spiritual rebellion even when we know all the right truths about God. You can have great understanding of who God is. Yeah, God's sovereign. God's in control. God's the one who made everything, heaven and earth. But I am going to continue to do what I want. Having the right truths is not the same thing as having a healthy, reverent fear of God that leads to wisdom. And Jonah shows us that even in his answer. But the sailors, again in this scene, stand in contrast to Jonah. Look at verse 10. They hear Jonah's words and look at their response. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. If you wanted to go with a literal translation of that phrase, it would be, then the men feared a great fear. So they hear this, oh wait, the reason we're in this mess is because Jonah isn't doing what Yahweh said, and he's the one behind this incredible, terrible storm. They realize that Jonah's defiance is the reason they find themselves in the life-threatening circumstances that they're in. They even recognize the reality of what it was said earlier in the text, that Jonah's fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them that. But they don't know what to do yet. So they, they respond, well, what are we, should we do so that, that we'll be saved, so the sea will quiet down? Because it just keeps getting worse and worse. And Jonah comes along and he offers them a solution. He says, throw me overboard. Now you might think that seems like a noble thing. I don't think it is. Jonah is so defiant of what God told him to do, he's literally willing to die instead of go to Nineveh. Like Jonah could have just said, you know what? You're right. I haven't been following what God told me to do. God told me to go to Nineveh. We're heading the opposite direction. Let's turn this ship around. Let's head back to shore. If we do that, that'll be great. I'll obey God. But no, Jonah has no interest in repentance, no interest in turning, no interest in doing what God actually wants him to do. And so he basically says, why don't you just throw me overboard and end my life? Then I don't have to go to Nineveh and you'll be saved. Go for it. 
And these guys are still, they have such a healthy fear of God that they even recognize, they're like, uh, I'm not sure if that's the best solution. They're like, we're, why don't we just like try to make it back to land first? Then, then we'll think about, before we think about throwing you overboard. But the sea just keeps getting worse. The storm just continues to increase. And at some point, these guys recognize, all right, we've got to do something about this. I think we're going to have to take his choice. I think we're going to have to throw this guy in the water. But look what they do in response to this, right? Look at verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So even as they get ready to do this act of throwing Jonah overboard, we see the sailors respond with a healthy level of fear. Their prayer actually reveals a deeper spiritual seeking when it stands in contrast to even their earlier prayers. Notice, this prayer is different than how they prayed earlier. They're not just addressing gods in general or the God. They address this prayer specifically to Yahweh, to Jonah's God. Not only that, there's specific content in their prayer. God, would you do this? Don't hold us accountable for this action. But even at the end, they acknowledge God's sovereign control. The phrase that they use right there at the end, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you, is a phrase that's found in multiple places in the psalm, Psalms, which remind us of God's sovereignty, that God can do as he decides. And so even these guys, we find the words of Scripture on their lips as they pray. As their condition got worse and worse, even to the point where they're like, we're going to do something we don't want to do. Instead of turning from God, they respond by calling out to God. So who's the one that has greater fear in the story? Well, it's people who call out to God in the midst of their struggle. It's the sailors who are willing to acknowledge, even as the storm got worse, even as they were like, oh, we really don't want to do this, we're still going to call out to God. Jonah, he says one thing, I fear God, but I have no interest in obeying him. These sailors are continuing to lean in and continuing to call out to God. How, again, do we respond in the struggles and challenges of our lives? When God seems like he's not working the way we think he should, or when life seems like it's against us, or there's just certain things that God calls us to do that we have no interest in doing. Do we respond by calling out to him in the midst of that struggle? Or are we like Jonah, silent in our rebellion, in our obstinance, in our unwillingness to follow what God has called us to do? What will help us determine how we answer that question, whether we call out to God in the midst of our struggle or whether we don't, is how sovereign and powerful we understand God to be. Jonah shows in this scene that he has a very small view of God. That even though he knows the right truths about God, when it comes to his life, he does not view God to be the sort of God that he needs to have a healthy, reverent fear for. In fact, he's even willing to say, I don't care, I'll go to death before I follow what you call me to do. When we have a small view of God in our lives, we will continue in spiritual rebellion, even in certain parts of our lives, because we think, oh, God doesn't have a right over that part of me. God can't tell me what to do in that way. I know better than God does. We might not say it, but our lives might show it like Jonah. And when it does, 
that often leads to the worst sorts of consequences. The sailors, on the other hand, have a big view of God. They recognize his power. They have a great fear about the reality that he is sovereign and he is free to do as he chooses. They recognize that they are hopeless in the situation without his intervention. And it causes them to call out to God and say, God, would you intervene? Would you do something? Would you spare us? Don't hold this man's blood accountable for us. Right? They view his power and that causes them to call out to him in the midst of the struggle as the storm gets worse. Looking at Jonah and the sailors here forces us to ask the question, do we have a right view of God's sovereignty and power? Are there parts of our lives where we said, no, God, you don't get to tell me what to do there. I get to do what I want to do. Do we have certain parts of our world that we think God doesn't get to dictate that? You see, our lives will display whether we have a reverent fear of God Because in the midst of our struggle, we'll call out to him. And if we don't, like Jonah, even we'll be willing to take the worst of consequences to stay in our rebellion. But in verse 15, this opening story comes to a dramatic conclusion. Look at this last scene. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So here we come at the end of this section to see the complete picture of the contrast between Jonah and the sailors. Jonah essentially says, throw me in the sea. And so the sailors finally, in reluctance, decide to make the decision to throw him overboard. And the text notes that as soon as he is, the sea ceased from its raging. Peace comes to the boat. The sailors are saved. Jonah is pictured here as a sacrifice that brings peace to the sailors. But even in that, two things come into view that we have to understand about what the author is trying to draw our attention to in this scene. First, is that what we see in verses 15 and 17 is that Jonah's spiritual descent, remember Jonah's moving downward, has finally reached its lowest point. The image of Jonah being thrown into the sea is the image of death. The sea is a symbol of evil and chaos in the ancient world. And for Jonah to be thrown in means there's no hope for Jonah. This is as close as the author can give you to describing Jonah's death without him actually dying. He wants you to see he's reached the bottom. There isn't any lower than this moment. Jonah wanted death, and here it is. He's thrown in ultimately to the sea. And Jonah experiences in that moment the judgment that comes out of his spiritual defiance as that's what the symbol of the fish is. The symbol of the great fish is a symbol of evil in the Old Testament. And evil comes to swallow up Jonah in his judgment and spiritual rebellion. When we live in spiritual rebellion long enough, there is at some point that evil swallows us up just like the fish does Jonah. And we see Jonah reach the bottom. But we also see a second image that the author wants to draw your attention to in the text. It's a little bit of a deeper image, but it's very clear for the Hebrew who would have read this passage. And it's the nature of God's work of salvation. 
The image of Jonah's descent ultimately into the sea, that Jonah was on this boat experiencing this storm, lots were cast over him, he was selected or found out, that he was offered then and thrown into the sea, into the image of evil and chaos, and that that ultimately result in peace for the sailors would have stirred up in the Hebrew mind another passage that has the exact same story. It's found in Leviticus 16. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to understand the imagery that the author is trying to use. Leviticus 16 was the high feast of the Israelite feast. It's known as the Day of Atonement. It would happen once a year, and it's where God would deal with the sins of his people in order that he could remain in covenant relationship with them. Because a holy God cannot be with a sinful people unless there's a sacrifice made for sin. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would bring two goats to the high priest of Israel, and the priest would cast lots. That's what it says. And they would cast lots over the two goats and it would fall on one of the goats. And they would take that goat. They would pray over the goat because the goat would now come to represent the nation and they would lay the sins of Israel. They would confess the sins of Israel over the goat. And then the goat would be taken from that place and it would be taken out into the wilderness, another ancient symbol of evil and chaos, and it would be let go to go off into the wilderness and die. And the image in the Old Testament is that that goat would bear the sins of God's people, it would remove the sin from the camp of Israel, and would ultimately be a sacrifice for all the sins that Israel had committed. It's the image that we get when we use the word scapegoat. That's the idea. That the goat took the sins for the people, sacrificed itself so they could continue in relationship with God. Jonah, in this story, is pictured here as a scapegoat. He is being offered. Lots cast over him, cast into evil and disobedience. He ultimately brings peace. Jonah assumes God's judgment so the sailors can experience peace and salvation. But Jonah's sacrifice not only points back to the nature of God's salvation, it actually also points forward to God's complete work of salvation for a world that's lost and suffering due to sin. Jesus would actually allude to these very verses in his ministry. He's approached by a group of teachers of the Jewish law. And they ask Jesus for a sign. They come to him and they say, Jesus, give us a sign that you actually are the Messiah, that you're the one that God promised would come, would rescue the world from sin, would establish God's kingdom, and would bring flourishing and harmony back to the world. We want to know that you're actually who you say you are. So give us the sign that that's who you are and what you're doing. And this is what Jesus responds to those teachers in Matthew chapter 12. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus looked back at the reality of Jonah's sacrifice that brought peace to the sailors, which look back at the sacrifice of the goat 
on the behalf of God's people's sin so God could remain in relationship. And Jesus says, you want to know what sign is that I'm bringing God's salvation? You want to know what sign is going to be that I'm the Messiah? It's going to be the fact that I'm going to die on behalf of all people who walk in sin. But then three days later, I'm going to rise again because unlike them, I will ultimately conquer sin and death. You see, Jonah reminds us that you and I, in our spiritual defiance and rebellion, stand under God's judgment. That apart from Christ, all of us are in rebellion against God. All of us have turned from God's ways. Every single human being has fallen short of God's glory. We have actively made the decision to say, screw you, God. I'm not going to do what you want me to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And because of that, we deserve God's judgment on us. But the good news of the gospel is that God saw us in our sin and he sent Jesus to be the scapegoat for us. That Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't live. That he lived as a perfect sacrifice. And ultimately, Jesus was willing to go to the cross to die for our sins. To assume God's wrath and judgment on the cross so that we could be saved from our spiritual defiance and rebellion. And like Jonah, Jesus went into the very heart of evil and chaos and sin and death. He went into the grave for three days. But the good news is that Jesus didn't stay in the grave. After three days, he rose again, announcing that his sacrifice was accepted, that our sins could be atoned for, that God's kingdom is breaking into the world and that we now can be saved from the evil and chaos of our lives and have peace with God and peace and harmony with one another for all of eternity in God's kingdom. And what we see in Jonah is that while Jonah's disobedience brought temporary salvation to a group of sailors, Jesus's perfect obedience brought ultimate salvation for all that would come to him by faith. That's the picture that we see here, and it's amazing because what we're reminded here is that the nature of salvation, of what God does in saving us, is not what you do for God, it's what God does for you through another. The sailors are saved not because they're good, not because they do what's right. They're saved because God would, offer, or God would accept the sacrifice of Jonah so that they could experience peace. And it's the same for you and me. We're not saved by our work. We're not saved by what we're doing. We're not saved by cleaning up our life. The only way we're saved is when we trust in the work of another, Jesus Christ, on our behalf, and we put our faith in him. And that's what we are called to do. And then the question is, so how do we respond to God's work of saving us in Christ? And this is where the sailors give us an incredible picture of what faith looks like when it's rooted in a reverent, healthy fear and understanding of God. Look at verse uh, 16 again. So the sea ceases from its raging. They experience the salvation that God brings. And then it says, the men, what's it say? Feared the Lord exceedingly. They have another great moment of fear, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Who are the people that fear God? It's the people who respond to God's work of salvation with submissive worship. Have you traced the fear that these sailors experience throughout the story? Right? They start with a first fear early on in the story. When the storm arises, they're afraid 
And what they have at that point is ignorant fear. They don't know why. They don't know what's happening. They're ignorant of what God is doing. But there's a certain reverent fear that comes up. And it causes them to lean into asking God's question, to ask questions, to seek deeper understanding. Not to move away from God, but to move towards him. Then at some point they move from ignorant fear to informed fear. They recognize, as Jonah confesses, God's the one behind this. It's Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, Lord over all, sovereign, majestic. And as their fear is informed, they respond again by moving towards God and calling out to him. But then here, as peace is brought and salvation comes, they once again respond with fear. But this time, it's a submissive fear. What's a submissive fear? It's a fear that puts God in his rightful place and lives in response to his awesomeness. It's seeing who God is and responding by trusting him and worshiping him with their lips and lives. Their response to salvation is to worship, right? They offer sacrifices as an act of adoration towards God for what he has brought to them. But not only that, they don't only offer a sacrifice. It says, and they made vows, or the literal Hebrew says they vowed vows. There's a double emphasis there. Meaning, they not only just sacrificed to God, they made a commitment to follow and live as followers of Yahweh. The sailors show us what genuine worship looks like when it experiences and recognizes the mighty act that God does in saving us. Worship is when we respond to that moment with our lips, with our praise, with the sacrifice of praise that says, God, you are awesome. But it's also a life that's lived for him. Worship is the only appropriate response to that salvation that God accomplishes for us in Jesus Christ. If we have a healthy fear of God, a healthy understanding, if we really recognize his power and majesty and holiness, and awesomeness. And then we also recognize that out of that, he loved us enough to save us, that we will respond with lips and lives that make much of him. I have a friend who he always characterizes this. He says, the heart of worship, of what it looks like to worship God, is to see God and respond with wow and thank you. That when we see God for who he is, we can't help but go, wow. Wow, you are holy. Wow, you are powerful. Wow, you are more majestic than I can imagine. Wow, you are the greatest thing that ever was. There is no one like you, God. You are awesome in your ways. Wow, that's who you are. And thank you. Thank you that you would love someone like me. Thank you that you would save me from my sin and bring me into your kingdom. Thank you that you would give me a relationship with the living God of the world universe through the work of Jesus Christ. Wow is where we recognize God for who he is and respond with reverent fear. Thank you is recognizing what God has done and responding with lives of submissive faith. And the heart of worship that we see in these sailors, the heart that every single one of us is called to is the same thing. Faith in Jesus is where we continually seek to look at God as he's revealed in Christ and respond with lives that say, wow, and thank you. So where are you at this morning? Do you have a healthy fear of God? 
Do you constantly look and stand amazed at who he is? Do you live your life for him, seeking to make much of who he is with what you say, with what you claim, with what you praise, but also how you live? Or are you like Jonah, stuck in your downward spiritual direction, running from God as fast as you can? Who do you fear? What this passage reminds us is that part of a healthy faith or part of a submissive faith is having a healthy fear. But the good news is, even if you are in a downward direction, there's still hope for you. Because one of the things I love as much as anything about this passage is it's a reminder that a journey that leads to a healthy fear of God is a journey that's available to each one of us. And the sailors are the least likely characters to show reverent fear that results in submissive faith. They're, They're pictured in the story. They're far from God. They're not part of God's covenant people. They're not God's prophet. They're not the ones who are called to follow him. But what we see is they're the exact ones who are willing to follow and trust God. It's not the religious prophet that stands as the hero of the story. It's not the theologian who knows so much about God but continues to think he knows better. The people who respond with healthy fear in the story are the ones many thought would have been farthest away. But they recognize that salvation isn't in them. It's found in another. And so maybe you feel like you're a long way from God this morning. Let the journey of the sailors remind you that you're never too far away to experience the amazing mercy of God. And that as you look to him, as you seek him with your questions, as you call out to him in your distress, and you see the salvation that he offers in Jesus Christ, all of us can respond in faith and say, wow, you are amazing. Thank you. Let me live for The good news is, even if you're not ready to do that, even if you're like Jonah, still pursuing the spiritual bottom, God's not done with Jonah yet, and he's not done with you either. And we'll see that next week. But for now, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your just incredible love for us. Thank you for the way you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you're a God of power and majesty, might and awesomeness, that we will never tire of looking at you and your infinite beauty and wisdom and glory and not stand in awe. That there will become no point in all of eternity where we will not say, wow, look how amazing our God is. And that we will have the chance to live the rest of eternity thanking you for what you've done in Jesus. But God, I know there's parts of my heart that I still struggle to live in a healthy fear of you. And I know my brothers and sisters that are gathered in this room and online, that there's parts of all of our hearts that we might still be in defiance. God, I pray you would help us to have a healthy fear of you. That we would stand in awe of you and allow you to invade those parts and call us back. Help us to see your mercy and grace in Jesus no matter what struggle we're facing, no matter what battle we're in, no matter what storm might be surrounding us, would you help us to move towards you in faith?
to trust more deeply and to worship you. Even now, as we prepare to respond in worship, I pray that you would move in our hearts this way. Holy Spirit, we just give this time to you. It's in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.